Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 25 through 30, and the message is entitled, God's Role for Men. And again, this is part one. We did two parts with the women. We'll hit two parts with the men. Um, having dealt with God's role for the women in marriage, um, Paul now moves on to deal with God's role for the man, which cannot be accomplished apart from Christ Jesus. No man is sufficient of his own ability or strength. Impossible. The commands of God in marriage are impossible apart from the Lord. Both the woman and the man is a sinner. They're both sinners. Selfish, self-centered. I'll stop there. But the Lord um, who commands this high call also enables the man to fulfill it just as he enables the woman to fulfill her role as we've seen. Remember, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Therefore, the greater responsibility falls on the man. I didn't make the rules. This head is responsible for the rest of the body here. This head gives the commands of my hands, my legs, everything. The head can't say, I didn't do it. The hand did it. Can't do that. Man, you're the head of your home. God has placed you there. Notice um, Paul directs only three verses to the woman in verse 22, 23, and 24. But seven to the men, 25 to 31. This is because he is the head of the wife. And to those who much is given, much more is required. Yet, though he is the head of the woman... His authority is never spoken of as being used for himself, but for the benefit of his wife. Jesus put it this way to his disciples in Luke twenty-two twenty-seven: For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table, yet I am among you as one who serves? Says it all. If Jesus came and he served and he was the Lord and Master, then we should follow his example. Again, the marriage relationship is put side by side with Christ's relationship to the church. A parallel found nowhere else in Scripture, thereby giving the highest honor and dignity to marriage right here. The basic responsibilities of a husband and wife can be reduced to one simple command for each. God knowing we couldn't handle any more than one. The woman is to submit to her husband, and by doing so, she is loving her husband. And we've already qualified submitting as unto the Lord and not beyond Scripture. The man is to love his wife. By doing so, he is submitting to her. We're compliments. We're not competing against one another. Let me read here, verse 25 to 30. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hate, hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church, 
For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. So Paul says that the man's role is to love his wife by describing it in a threefold manner. First, the man's love is to be sacrificial. Verse 25. Sacrificial. Secondly, the man's love is to be sanctifying. Verse 26 and 27. Third, the man's love is to be satisfying. Verse 28 to 30. It begins with the man's love to be sacrificial. Look at verse 25. The husband in his sacrificial love does so as head of his home. The husband's love is marked by divine love. Notice, husbands, love your wives. Not just any woman. Not every woman. Only your own wife. The possessive articles there. The word for love is agape, as you know, which is one of the four words found in the Greek. This word agape is distinct from phileo, the mental plane and soulish affection that is based on feelings, emotions, and romantic passion. Too often, this is where relationships are based on men and women, and therefore, because of the culture is so immoral, they jump right into bed and you ruin the whole relationship. And then you say, well, I, I, I never really loved them. This, or, or some people don't even care about that anymore. We're so low on the moral scale in America. This kind of love manipulates one for, to the other. It uses, it abuses. It's distinct also from the eros, which is a sexual love. But that sexual love is between a man and a woman only in marriage. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, you've got to understand that all these things that he's been saying in Ephesians, they're so outrageous to the culture that he's giving it. Sometimes we read the New Testament and say, well, you know, and we, we think that we are so, it's so difficult for us. Are you kidding me? These commands to the first century church, the Roman church that embraced the Greek culture, were so corrupt, so sensual, so carnal. The Jews, which held a very low view of marriage, even though it was the highest, the things that Paul is telling to the men and women is so outlandish that it hurt their ears more than it does in our generation. Trust me. It's distinct from the word storge, family love, affectionate love of husband to children, wives, daughters, so on and so forth. The word is agape, which is used throughout the New Testament for God's divine love for man. Um, Greek commentator says, quote, It is the love, consequently, not merely of duty, but of nature, divine. John 3.16 defines it for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in should not perish, but have everlasting life. Go to 1 John 3.16 when you go home, and you'll notice a good parallel there. Now, it is a love whose source is Christ through the believer. So Christ is the source. Mark it well as we go through this text. Um, to love my wife is to be the most natural as a Christian. If I walk in the spirit, there's the big if. If I walk in the spirit, it's going to come. But if I don't, it's never going to come. 
Ephesians 5.2 says, Walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Jesus demonstrated his love constantly by his sacrifice, by his service. Now, this sacrificial love is to be ongoing. Notice verse 25. This is evident from the Greek grammar, the imperative present active tense. The text reads, continue to love or go on loving, driving me to Christ. Because I cannot keep doing that on my own. Consistently, it's impossible. So really, the word of God drives us to Christ. It brings us, it's to bring us to the end of ourselves in recognition that it is not in us, only through us, but Christ being the source. Notice the command is not an option. It is a command that is to be carried out based on the enabling of Christ. The command is not based on feelings, emotions, but obedience. Too often and too much today, people um, make all their decisions based on how they feel or what they like. There's no discipline. There's no commitment. There's no denial of self. And so everything is subjective. Objective truth is lost in our society. Notice the husband's sacrificial love is marked by an unbelievable potential. Still 25 there. Listen to the words. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. The parallel of comparison is the example of Christ loving the church by the evidence of giving himself for her on the cross. The word just means even as or in proportion or degree. So what Jesus did, here's the parallel. I as a man am called to do exactly what he did in proportion because he's the one that enables me. If I try to do that in proportion, apart from abiding and depending on him, it'll never happen. Never. It cost him his life. It was the evidence of his love. Jesus put it this way, I lay down my life, no one takes it from me, John ten seventeen. The word church, as you know, is ecclesia, literally, the called out ones. Called out from sin to holiness, from darkness to light. And the word loved is the same word agape, but in a different form, agapao. It's the indicative error is active. Jesus continues to love his church. He not only demonstrated it by dying, but he continues to love her. Notice Jesus Christ, being the head of the church, laid down his life for his bride. So the man, being the head of the home, is to be laying down his life for his bride. Listen, daily. I think to die for your wife in some occasion or altercation that someone tries to assault her and you step in and they shoot you is easy. Here's the hard part. Every day, 
dying to self. That will bring you to the end of yourself. That'll drive you to Christ. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. John 15, 13. Paul the Apostle speaks of this agape love and its incredible potential in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 through 8. Listen carefully. Agape suffers long and is kind. Agape does not envy. Agape does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Agape never fails. Are you encouraged? <laughs> now, Put your name in there. Xavier suffers long. I have to stop right there. The only other name you can substitute is the name of Jesus there. So our dependency has to be on Jesus, who is able to give us that agape love. Whenever I have... Um, Dependent on God's agape love, I have never failed. However difficult the test has been. When I have not depended on agape love, I have failed every time. Every time. So the failure is not in God's lack of provision. The failure is in my lack of dependency. The context here is the gifts. In 1 Corinthians 13, for the Corinthians were carnal, exalting themselves through the gifts as if they were credentials for spirituality. You can have all the gifts of the Spirit if that were possible. That doesn't mean you're spiritual. The Corinthians had all the gifts, and Paul calls them carnal. Gifts are simply gifts for the benefit of others, not for yourself. But there are no credentials of spirituality. You can be carnal and have the gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy. God may even use you for healing other people. Doesn't mean you're spiritual. I mean, God has mercy and love towards others and he'll use you. That's it. You see, the gifts are given by God's grace. And you're not, you cannot possess them for your own will or for your own benefit. Um, they're not to be exercised apart from the motive of God's love. So this way we can receive some reward. If I do what I do for pride, for attention to myself, or for people to be in awe of me, then I've got my reward. But if I do what I do by agape love and for the love of God and love of people, then God will reward me. The motive of the heart, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. It's important. So God is not impressed with how much I do or what I do. He's more concerned is how and why I do what I do. The fruit of the Spirit is agape, love. Galatians 5.22 tells us that. The noun is in the singular, fruit, not plural. The fruit of the Spirit is identified as singular there. 
Many times people speak about the eight fruits of the Spirit. I don't know what Bible they're reading. The agape love of God is to be the mark of believers. That singular fruit demonstrates that the rest of the list are the manifestations of agape love. Joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Those are all manifestations of love. The agape love of God is to be the mark of the believer. By this, all men shall know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. John thirteen thirty-five. And so, you hear today, well, let's not argue about doctrine. Let's just love one another because then they quote this verse. Now, they're absolutely right in quoting the verse. We are to be known for our love for one another, but not at the expense of doctrine. That is absolutely a lie. You do not exchange love for doctrine. For if you do, you really don't love God. Because Jesus says, who abides in my doctrine, he's my disciple. Very important. So today in the church, you've got this mamby-pamby, emotional, goopy, sloppy agape love. That's not biblical. And sacrificing doctrine. Because the church has moved into the political correctness of the world, into the church. And so no one wants to judge. No one wants to say and speak the truth from the scriptures. They might offend somebody. Maybe a big tither. So be it. So men, here's a high call through agape love. Driving me to the Lord. A man uh, left for work on Friday afternoon. But being payday, instead of going home, he stayed out all night. In fact, the entire weekend with his friends spending the entire paycheck. So when he finally appeared at the home on Sunday night, he was uh, confronted by a very angry wife and was barraged for merely two hours with the tirade befitting his actions. Finally, the wife stopped the nagging and simply said to him, quote, How would you like it if you didn't see me for two or three days? He replied, That'd be fine with me. Monday went by. He didn't see his wife. Tuesday and Wednesday came and went the same result. Come Thursday, the swelling went down just enough where he could see her little out the corner of his eye. Now, that's not sacrificial love. Okay? Marriage is not playing football without a helmet. But that's what it will be if you don't trust Christ and depend upon him. Because of our sinfulness, because of our pride, because of um, our self-love. Some men may say, you don't know my wife. Really? 
Listen to the type of woman Christ died for, to be his bride. She has committed the worst of sins, moral and ethical, inward and outward, and Christ has forgiven her and continues to do so. You can't come up with anything else if you read your Bible. Where do you come from? That's who Christ died for. She's a new creation, having abandoned the old life of sin, so there is to be a loving passion and longing for each other. By our oneness in Christ, having eyes only for one another, regardless of the physical changes, and they will come. Time and gravity will take care of you. Adam experienced a type of death to obtain his bride, if you remember, in Genesis 3.21. Jesus um, was pierced on his side, and water and blood came forth as he died in her stead to obtain her for himself. If I think that I'm the exception as a man, and I don't have to die daily to love and enjoy my bride... I'm, I'm really deceived. And the worst form of deception is self-deception. Not only that, but when you met your wife, she wasn't the person you are complaining about today, or you wouldn't have married her. The process of time and marriage has resulted in the product of who she is in the present. We affect one another. She's what she is partly because of you, husbands. And you are what you are partly because of her. We affect one another. The man experiences a constant loving death for his bride and providing for her needs out of agape love, not her greeds. Very important. You know, in the world, there's such a pressure on men to provide and to perform and to whatever it is. And in the way the world is today, it's all upside down. And when we come to Christ, we're to go to the scriptures so we can understand and know exactly what it is to be a godly man and a godly woman, particularly in marriage. The principle was laid down. After the fall, Adam was to earn his bread by the sweat of his brow. Genesis 3.19. He is the provider. He has a heavier, heavier skeletal frame, a more muscular body. God created him for hard work. A woman, she was created to have children. Now, I'm not saying that that's all Christian women are to do. I'm just telling you that the highest call for a woman, as we said, is to be a wife and a mother. And the highest call of a man is to be a godly head to take care of his wife and his children. That's the highest priority. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy regarding church order in 
teaching, declaring that if a man does not provide for his own house, he is worse than an unbeliever in 1 Timothy 5.8. The responsibility falls on the man. Some men work two jobs that their wife might stay at home and take care of the children. That's a loving sacrifice. Some even three. Paul told the Corinthians husbands not to feel guilty about caring about some things in the world because um, he had to please his wife, 1 Corinthians 7.33. So he says, you know, don't get all, um, you don't have to go away from the world. You're married, now you're a Christian. doesn't mean that you have to, you know, neglect everything. No, because when you're married, you have obligations to your wife and your wife has obligations to you. When you're single, you just take care of yourself. You don't have any obligation to anybody else. So you're much freer to serve the Lord. But when you're married, you can't say you love the Lord and neglect your duties at home. Right? It's inconsistent. At times, men will say, God has called them to ministry. And some have quit their jobs, putting their families through tremendous suffering and Difficulties, and God never intended that. Because men listen to men rather than study the Word of God and listen to God. If God calls you, He's going to open the doors, He's going to take care of you. Paul was called to ministry, but he worked all his life. So being called to ministry doesn't mean that you stop working at times. God will show you. But God's not the author of confusion. If he calls you, he will open those doors. That's why we don't believe in begging for money. We don't believe in sending out letters from the church. We don't do any of that. We believe God will open the doors. He will provide. He will take care of it. And if not, then he wants me to work. Simple. Paul says this, 1 Timothy 3, 4 and 5. He says, a man is to rule his house well. For if he does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Simple. Your credentials for ministry is not seminary, not a doctor's degree. It's your home. That's your credentials. The man's sacrificial love forgives when there is um, genuine repentance. The measure of forgiveness is beyond our own ability or capacity. Listen, Ephesians 4.31 says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, or loud quarreling and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you, even as in proportion... In degree, whoa, no one will ever sin against you as much as you have sinned and will sin against God. That's a hard truth to swallow, but it's a truth, absolutely. In proportion to all Christ forgave you and I and continues to do so. When we do not do that, we grieve the Holy Spirit as Paul told them not to do in Ephesians 
Paul says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter against them. Colossians 3.19, the sister epistle. Forgiveness is a loosening and a breaking off of the weight that is wearing you down and tearing you up to be able to live abundantly, being a type of Christ. Unforgiveness hurts you more than anyone else, and sometimes only you. Having no resentments, bitterness, or begrudgments by past offenses of the wife or husband, lest you stand in the position of that evil steward who refused to forgive, having been forgiven millions in Matthew 18, 23 through 35. The ideal situation is genuine godly repentance, which confesses, clarifies, and answers the necessary questions to be able to resolve the past or the present and move on into the future, being completely honest and truthful, or you will undermine the trust. So when there is failure on the husband or the wife, you must be truthful, you must acknowledge, and you must ask forgiveness. But don't cover a lie with another lie. Or you undermine the trust of your marriage. Very important. The sacrificial love required of the man keeps him close to Christ, depending on him to protect his bride. Husbands, your sacrificial love for your wife is demonstrated by protecting her from other men who would want to disrespect her or have authority over her. It's part of the problem of women going to work. They're under other men's authority. And uh, the only safe man is a dead man. Just the way it is. This includes your own children, by the way. Or should I say particularly your own children. They'll be the first to try to disrespect your wife. Particularly when you're not home. So you must both agree that when the children disobey... That she is a squealer when you get home. You do not undermine the authority of your husband and allow the children to divide you. Husband and wife, you are one. And the sooner the children understand that you both are one and nothing can divide you and you will rat them out, the better and the faster they will behave. It's real simple. This simple sacrificial love requires of a man to keep him close to Christ again. This is no different with stepchildren because we are a lot of blended families. Obedience to the principle is the same. You're one. Never allow the, to, your, come out of your mouth, say your children. If you marry a woman who has children, we understand they're stepchildren, but they're your children. And then the difficulty on the other part, who the woman, if the children are hers or his, when discipline comes in, then they want to step in. No, no, no. One head. You can disagree apart from the kids and then come in and redeem it which way, but you don't argue in front of them and you don't let them and show them that you're going to divide it. You'll destroy your home. Absolutely destroy it. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do some things. 
<laughs> nothing. John 15, 5. Absolutely nothing. The man's love is to be sacrificing, sacrificial. Second, the man's love is to be sanctifying. Look at verse 26 to 27. The reason for this quality of love is that the husband is the high priest of the home, even as Christ is the high priest of the church. Notice in 26, the product to be sought out as the goal by the husband is the sanctification and cleansing of the bride. That he might sanctify and cleanse her. The picture is of Christ sanctifying and cleansing his bride to himself. Notice. The word that is a henna clause introducing the purpose clause uh, to sanctify. The word uh, is hagiaso. It means to set apart for special purpose. We get the word saint, holy, same root. The word is often used with the idea of reverence and setting apart from the profane as the tabernacle and as furnishings, simply dedicated for the Lord's work. The giving of himself is in a vicarious sacrifice as Jesus sanctifies the bride to himself. In other words, he died in her place. So the wife is set apart for the husband alone in marriage, no other. The word cleanse means to purge or purify. The idea is of cleansing of the sins of the past at repentance, as well as sins that will rise to impede and hinder the relationship between Christ and the believer, be it husband or wife of the church. First uh, John one nine, we confess our sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. First John two one, my little children. I do not practice sin. If you do fail, then you have Jesus Christ the righteous to make intercession for you. The advocate for the defense. Interesting, the word here, cleansing, is catharsis. And it's used by psychologists as one of the ways they help people relieve and purge themselves of the built-up anger and resentment as they allow them to go into a room and yell at a picture of their father or mother or beat on a thing and, you know, as an expression of their anger. And then they come out and they feel a little better. But the thing is, the steam's going to build up again. So those kind of things don't help, do they? The problem is the heart. The cleansing is for, for an ongoing loving and meaningful relationship between Christ and his church. And so the wife is cleansed by Christ for the marriage with her husband. Both sanctify and cleanse are errors actus, but the sanctifying is the result of the cleansing that comes first, indicated by the participle here, the Greek scholars tell us. But they happen simultaneously, but the sanctifying follows the cleansing. Now notice the practice of the husband is to be the same, to set his bride apart and cleanse her for himself and God. Recognizing that God intended one man for one woman. Recognizing that God intended his vows to be till death. 
recognizing that as he gives himself for her, he is setting her apart from all other men who would disrespect and abuse her if they could. Look at 26. The process which will um, accomplish the product of the bride is by the word of God. With the washing of water by the word. Paul says, with the washing. The word washing means um, to bathe, to wash completely. There's another word in the Greek which is used for washing only a part of the, as opposed to the whole. The word is nipto. John uses it when Jesus washed the disciples' feet in John 13, 8. See, we have been totally cleansed of our sins as we've repented and accepted Jesus. But we need to wash our feet as we walk in this world because we fail and we fall short. So we need to acknowledge our sin and be right with Jesus. We've been cleansed completely, but we still fall short. The word is found two other times, or two times only, in this form, in the New Testament. In our text here, the word is being used to indicate the efficiency and sufficiency of the act of setting the church apart for himself. In Titus 3.5, the washing also is indicative of the efficiency and sufficiency of salvation, by the regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So when he regenerates us, he washes us completely. He cleanses us. Notice the particular instrument to be used in the process to accomplish the product is the word of God. The word is rhema, as opposed to logos or logos, whichever way you want to pronounce it. The rhema is the spoken word. Now, a lot of the positive confession people of um, health and wealth make a big deal about rhema versus logos. There's no distinction between the two outside that rhema is spoken and the logos is more in concept and in other ways. But there's no distinction in power like they make it to be. Jesus in John 17, 17, praying to the Father, says, Sanctify them by your truth, your word. Is truth. Jesus told his disciples, You are cleansed by the words I have spoken unto you in John 15, 3. Hebrews 4, 12 says, The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intent of the heart, the word of God. It cuts, it convicts, it reproves, it instructs, it washes. It cleanses. The psalmist asks, Wherewithal will a young man cleanse his ways? In my heart have I hid thy word that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119, 7-11. You can understand why Satan is so instructive in having pastors and churches not teach doctrine. Not teach the word of God. Let's just love one another. Let's just run on emotions. You've got no stability. 
You're driving 100 miles an hour without a steering wheel. <laughs> the Word of God. Notice the purpose behind the process and the product of the bride is to present to himself a pure church on the final day. Verse 27. That he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So the word glorious describes the appearance of the bride, the church by her divine nature. The word that, once again, henna, is the second purpose clause here, to present to himself a church glorious, splendid, gorgeous. Think of a bride. And she's walking up. Nobody's looking at the baboon. They're looking at the bride. Notice it's due to the giving of himself. Christ is the agent of her regeneration. Ongoing transformation and presentation one day as a chaste virgin. Until then, he causes her to be and become all she can be. And this is what the husband is to, uh, to his bride. Being the head and the initiator. A chaste virgin. Second Corinthians 11.2 He's given us the white gown to wear. We couldn't wear it apart from him. The idea is her great esteem and high value. Not of her own nature, but the new nature through the new birth. Notice the church of Jesus will be presented without spot, he says. Meaning, no moral spot that is incurred from the world. Because in that day shall be glorified. Right now we still deal with sin. That day we won't have to. In other words, no sin for she will be with him in that future day. The word spot is found only one other time in the New Testament. In Second Peter 2.13. And notice the reason is that she has been sanctified, having been cleansed and washed by the blood and the word of God. And so the wife to her husband. The parallel is there. It's a direct parallel all the way through the text. But until that day, the church is in the world and not perfect. So she has to confess and ask forgiveness for the spots incurred from the world by the ongoing transformation of the Holy Spirit. The church of Jesus is that future day will also have, notice, no wrinkle. That which is um, brought on herself by the flesh as a result of her present sin nature still. When she's glorified, then that won't be a problem. What hinders me is my old flesh when I don't walk in the Spirit. When I give up my last breath, I'm instantly present. I won't have any problem with sin anymore. My sin nature will be gone. I'm glorified. And so the wife to her husband. So this reason again is that she has been sanctified, having been cleansed and washed by the blood and the word of Jesus Christ. 
Until that day, the church has to confess, ask forgiveness for those wrinkles incurred by our sinful nature as we yield to the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. Now, note that the church of Jesus has no spot or wrinkle or any such thing that would deny her oneness or separation from him through his vicarious death and resurrection. Even though we're not perfect, he's given us the means by which to stay right through the mediator, Jesus Christ, the advocate of the defense. And we keep our accounts short. We stay in fellowship and we walk in the light, even as he is in the light. You see, the church of Jesus is holy and without blemish, he says, trusting Jesus by faith now. But on that day, it will be unto perfection. Completely the bride of Christ in every way, without any impediments, without any weakness or anything else. The phrase should be holy here, hagios again, means to be separated from evil and sin. And it's the present active tense, ongoing. The phrase without blemish means without rebuke or faultless being justified by Jesus by faith now and unto that perfection of that day. These are to be the evidence of her nature, character, and habit of life, the church. Christensen writes in relationship to this passage in Ephesians. Listen carefully. Quote, Has thou seen the measure of obedience? Here also the measure of love. Wouldest thou that thy wife should disobey thee as the church does Christ? Have care thyself for her as Christ for the church. And if it be needful that thou shouldest give thy life for her, or be cut to pieces a thousand times, or endure anything whatsoever, refuse it not. Shakespeare says, love is not love which alters when it alteration finds, or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempest and is never shaken. That's God's agape love, ladies and gentlemen. The man sacrificing love for his wife is evident by his spiritual priesthood in the home towards his bride. Gentlemen, do you take your wife through the word and the family, those of you who are young? You need to be the high priest of your home. Take your wife through the word, both of you together. The things will change as you get older, as the kids grow up. But you move as a family. There's a family time. Again, don't go give an hour sermon to your five-year-old. Okay? Do it in proportion as they are with the Bible according to their age and all that. And, and, and it'll work out just fine. Um, too many men fail drastically here. They're not the spiritual leaders. They do not apply themselves to the study of God's word. Nor are consistent in going to church. So it's a bad example. They open their homes to destruction by their sin nature, the world and Satan. You use God's word to build her up, gentlemen, or merely to rule over her. If um, we're not growing together as husband and wife, then we're growing apart. It's real simple. If we leave the world, 
then we need to cling to the Word of God. We will ultimately leave one another if we don't cling to the Word. You'll grow apart. Do you pray together? Do you pray for her, gentlemen? Do you lay hands on your wife for wisdom, direction, guidance? When she's sick, you pray for strength and patience as she has to deal with the children daily. All those hours, you just come home at the end of the day. <laughs> and hopefully you can have a conversation above the cookie level. Just stay home one day and take care of the kids. I'm glad God made me man. Different roles. The man sacrificing love as high priest of the home presents himself a glorious bride set apart for himself alone. And it's through and by the word of God. She desires to be with no one else. Her cry is like the Shunammite. I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. The woman responds to the right initiation. She understands God's will for her in marriage and motherhood. As you take her to the word. As you're that high priest. She learns to resist Satan and to do good warfare. The spiritual weapons. She knows what is pleasing to her master Jesus and grateful for all she has done for her husband and herself. She has forsaken all others for the one that God has given to her. You see, if God's word is not the foundation of your marriage, ladies and gentlemen, time will make it evident. Feelings change, looks fade. Bodies change shape, but the word of God will keep you pure, passionate, and productive. The man's love is to be sanctifying. Notice third, 28 to 30. The man's love is to be satisfying. This is the fruit of, as the Lord satisfies the needs of his church as prophet. So the husband is to foresee and be sensitive to his wife's needs. 28, the man foresees that what husbands do to their wives, they actually do to themselves. So husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Notice the first command to love was after the example of Christ for the church. Now Paul provides a second example on a personal level for husbands their own bodies. The illustration is one of reality and direct application, not something hypothetical. Men love their bodies. It is a sinful practice of our sin nature to be applied to the wife by a type of Christ and enabled by the Spirit of God. Ephesians 5.18, continually being filled with the Spirit of God. Self-love notice for his own body describes the manner, measure, and the extent of man is to love his wife as their own bodies. This is something foreign 
and was foreign to the Jew as well as the Gentile in Paul's day. This is a high call. The Jew would even scoff at this. Are you kidding me? The husband's obedience is a moral obligation. Look at the word ought. It has the idea of being bound or to owe. The indicative present active uh, tense indicates continually. The motive is agape love. The agape love of Christ. Not duty. The motive is love. So the husband who loves his wife as his own body will bring ongoing satisfaction to his wife. This doesn't mean that you never have any differences. Doesn't mean that, that you're always just jumping up and throwing flowers up in the air. That's not what we're talking about. But you're not playing football without a helmet. Notice the man who loves his wife actually loves himself in an appropriate way opposed to his sinful practice. The husband is being obedient to Christ, the husband is satisfying his wife, and the husband is benefiting himself and his household. She can and will be his helpmate to complete him and complement him. Because the woman responds to my initiation. My wife. Look at 29 and 30. The man foreseeing the wisdom of satisfying her physical and emotional and spiritual needs. For no man or no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes just as the Lord does the church. Every man has the good sense to not hate his own flesh. That wouldn't be good in the long run. Look at verse 29. There is no man who hates his own body, but he nourishes it and cherishes it, it says. The word hate means to dis, uh, detest or disdain. The tense again, indicative errors, active, expressing what is always true. This is not an exaggeration. Just go to the gym. Just watch women when there's mirrors around. The word nourish appears two times in the New Testament. The other time is in the next chapter by the phrase, bring them up, meaning to rear up or to nourish to maturity. Talking about the children, Ephesians 6, 4. And the tense again is the indicative present active, meaning continual. The word cherish means to warm or to brood, also appearing two times in the New Testament. The other one in Thessalonians, as Paul describes his um, gentle care of motherly love towards the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2.7. The tense again, indicative, present, active, continual. So all of these things, commands are continual. The idea of being one of gentle, loving, and sensitive care for his wife. Notice in 29, the husband Nourish and cherishes his wife as the Lord does the church. He is manifesting evidence of Christ in him, the hope of glory. He is dying to self, living for his bride. He is walking, being filled with the Spirit continually, fearing God. Every Christian husband and wife is the church of Christ. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bone. Notice that. 
We as husbands and wives are members of the church body. The term body is a metaphor used for the members in particulars. He's used it in chapter 4, verse 4, 12, 16, and 523. The term body expresses the idea that Christ is the head of the church and the control and enabling and directing each individual. He is the head. We as husbands and wives are members of his flesh and bones. Again, here the imagery continues the same thought as the previous one there. The fact that we are all intricately tied together in Christ in an intimate relationship such as husbands and wives. You know, a couple was um, having some trouble, so they, um, they went to a marriage counselor. And after a few visits and a lot of questions and listening, the counselor said, that um, he had discovered the main problem. So he stood up, went over to the woman, and he gave her a long hug. He looked at um, the man and said, this is what your wife needs at least once a day. The man frowned, thought for a moment, and said, okay, um, what time do you want me to bring her back tomorrow? Interesting. Gentlemen, your wives sometimes need a satisfying love from you without any overtones of sex. Just a simple hug, an arm around her shoulders, take a walk or something. The principle of sowing and reaping, gentlemen, is regretted or enjoyed in the home more than any other place. The husband who sows to the wind will reap the whirlwind, Hosea 8, 7. The husband who sows to the flesh will reap of the flesh. He sows to the spirit, he will reap of the spirit, Galatians 6, 7 through 8. The credentials for ministry, again, is not the ability or talent or gifts or degrees, but the home. Ladies, I hope you're not high maintenance. Because if you are, you'll take advantage of your husband. Gotta be very careful. The physical needs of the woman are essential. Foreseeing her need of affection, not just sex, as I said, being sensitive to her sexual needs, not just your own gratification. And the man will give love to get sex, and the woman will give sex to get love. Because we're different. Men initiate, women respond. The product of sex is equal to the process of the day, all that precedes it. In other words, if you're calling your wife, you're being sensitive to your wife, then she's going to respond to you. But if you're just nagging out commands and complaints, and then you think you're Don Juan at night, then, you know, the last thing she wants to do is have anything to do with you. It begins the morning you get up, how you get up, what you say, how you treat her before you leave. Simple. Is she the one doing all the physical work around the house? You got to be careful. She's mowing the lawn, painting the house. How do women do today? You see, the emotional needs of a woman needs to be met. Be considerate as to who receives the most benefit by the decisions we make, gentlemen. 
Um, do I decide where we're going to go vacation without considering the rest of my family? I ask them, the family, I go, hey, where do you guys want to go eat dinner? And the kids say, here, no, no, no. And my wife says, here, no, no, no. They all say, where do you want to go? Well, let's go here. Okay, well, why are you giving them a choice? Reliever of the children sometimes, gentlemen, especially when they're little. Do something special for her when it isn't her birthday. <laughs> now, I cannot meet all the needs of my wife. Only Jesus can. But I must not be slothful for my responsibilities towards my wife. It's not a matter of works, but a matter of love. God's agape love. Let her know that you love her. Tell her. First Peter 3, 7 says, Husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge or understanding, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel and being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. She's the weaker vessel. So we think right away I'm the stronger vessel. No, if she's the weaker vessel, I'm the weak vessel. Weaker, weak. We both have to depend upon Christ. Many wives are the product of their husbands. The man initiates again, the woman responds. The woman often turns into what the man has made her, though there are exceptions and certainly she's not without fault. Time does not automatically mean you are progressing in transformation. Many godly men are doing exactly what we've just studied in this hour, loving their wives as Christ. And I commend you, gentlemen, despite the unfairness and perhaps the offenses of their wives, they're being examples, despite the rebellion or the carnality of an unbelieving wife, maybe. Despite that they could be released from the marriage, but rather choose to be like Christ. I commend you. And we've seen much of this through the years. John 13, 17 says, if you know these things, blessed or happy are you if you do them. It comes to doing, ladies and gentlemen. He who has an ear, let him hear. Jesus repeated all the time, right? And so the man's love is to be satisfying. Here you have the man's role. It's to love his wife just as Christ loves the church. In this threefold manner. The man's love is to be satisfying. The man's love is to be sanctifying. And the man's love is to be satisfying. Tall order. No one's sufficient apart from Christ. Father, thank you for your goodness, your love, your grace. We pray, Lord, you will continue to just fill us with your spirit as we depend on you. Teach us as husbands to love our wives. Teach us to trust you, Lord. Teach us to be those high priests of the home. And the Lord, we would yield to the work that only you can do. As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Or maybe you're over the Internet. The Lord desires to save you and make you his bride. Cleanse you of your sins, to give you eternal life, 
and to use you and prepare you for the things he has. It comes through a prayer of repentance. If you believe Jesus died for your sins and that he rose from the dead, then he's able to forgive you. Then you can call upon him right now. This is your prayer of repentance to him. And he's going to save you right now. You can repeat this to him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.